He's been called a wizard, a mastermind, the ultimate ideas guy, a mad scientist, and a startup genius. As a social and political entrepreneur and community organizer, Dave Meslin promotes the message, we're stronger and smarter when we're all involved. His latest project is a book called Teardown, Rebuilding Democracy from the Ground Up. It's a recipe for change, a cure for cynicism, and a war on apathy, all in, what's that, 400 pages. There you go. Welcome. Nice to see you. Great to be here. So if you follow politics closely, like a lot of people do, you follow it maybe a little more closely than a lot, but, you know, we're on a talk radio station here. The listeners are engaged. Uh, But I think that it's easy to become cynical. It's easy to think that there's nothing we can do about what's going on here. The news is terrible every day. Uh, How do you avoid falling into that pit of cynicism? I do fall into it. Yeah? Yeah. So let me confess right off the bat. I have a lot of of empathy for people who are cynical because Mm -hmm. I I share it. Um, I mean, that's what really drove me to write the book. Um, I think people who are feeling that the system um, isn't responsive, is kind of rigged against them, is broken, is run by a bunch of insiders... I, I kind of I think they might be onto something, <laughs> right? So, but there's two ways you can react to that. One is to just roll your eyes, shrug your head, walk away, mm-hmm. and the other is to say, "Well, this is our system. If we think the system is broken, let's change it." Right? I mean, history has shown that political systems evolve, mm-hmm. and they evolve when people rise up and say, "Wait a minute, this isn't working for us." But would you say maybe that populism, which seems to be the the political flavor of the day, at least in North America, uh, is an evolution of what it was before? Well, let's let's break down that word populism because I hate it. Um, It's used in a negative derogatory way. Um, It's based on the assumption that the masses are stupid, right? The idea is that when politicians appeal to ordinary people's concerns— Um, we're all in trouble. Well, do you what think a terrible the, message. Well, but right? do you think it, that it, populism just means ruling in favor of the people? That's well, it. Well, do you think that populism, though, has it, it, it's been tarnished with that brush because sure. of the people that are wielding that brush sure, in the last sure. 10 years? I mean, my thesis is almost that populism isn't the problem. It's the answer. I mean, if right. populism is a political system that was actually responsive to all the ordinary people listening to your show right now, that would be great, right? Right. Um, There's nothing negative about the actual word, the the definition, the the dictionary Mm -hmm. definition of populism. So I hate how it's being thrown around to mean anyone who says something that's either racist, um, divisive, hostile, or very, let's say, economically short-sighted. Like, you just want money in your pocket, so we're going to cut everything. Right. That's, that's populism. Um, that assumes that people, that the average person doesn't understand long-term business planning, which isn't true at all. People mm-hmm. have RSPs. They save for their Have their to budget education. for their homes. Yeah, yeah. This idea that the ordinary person just wants low taxes, hates government, and is racist, I mean, it's, it's, it's absurd. Do you think that... You can equivocate the two, the idea of making a long-term budget for your home uh, and the idea that budgeting for a city or for a country, I mean, obviously there's some crossover on the the Venn chart there or whatever it is, but 
But I think that they're fundamentally two different things, though, okay. because of the scale that's involved, of uh, the the nuance that's involved. You know, in a family, it's like, okay, we've got to eat. We've got to pay our mortgage. We've got to uh, put money aside so that Susie and Billy can go to school and, right. you know, what pay, make a car pay. I don't know, whatever whatever it is, whatever yeah. your concerns are. And people are. do that and quite people responsibly. Do that. Yeah, people do that responsibly. But in government, it's a different thing. There's so many moving parts that I don't know that you can equivocate the two. And the the larger problem is that the ordinary um, household o- owner has a grasp of what their costs are. Right. So obviously we're, we have to make our mortgage payments, as you said. Yeah. We have to we have to pay for the car. I think there's a disconnect um, between the or- ordinary taxpayer and the government services we get. So mm-hmm. we feel like the money's just going down the toilet. Right. Um, so that 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 creates an issue where people some people just want their taxes lower um, when people know what they're getting in exchange for their money. They're happy to spend it. I mean, I when mm-hmm. I buy a product, I don't go for the cheapest version. Yeah, I, don't, yeah. I don't go to the dollar store um, my from my clothes to my phone to my laptop. I pay money for quality. So if people felt that they were getting bang for buck, they'd be fine paying their taxes. Um, I think it's difficult to really figure out where the hell are my taxes going? But that's part of the political breakdown I'm talking about. I'm speaking with Dave Meslin. The book is called Teardown, Rebuilding Democracy from the Ground Up, and it's currently available uh, wherever you buy books or download them legally. Wherever you legally download books, uh, you can find Teardown, Rebuilding Democracy from the Ground Up. I also think that when people think about government, and, and money. And we'll talk about the specifics in the book in a sec, but I'm trying to lay some groundwork here for the rest of the conversation. When people think about uh, money and, and where their taxes and, and things go, it's so much money that it almost doesn't feel real. You know, I can understand Bev Oda, the outrage around her ordering a glass of orange juice that cost $12 because I can under in, in expensing it back. I can understand $12, right? but $12 billion, that's star Wars money, man. Right. I, I don't get that. Yeah. I actually have a piece in the book where I talk about how the, the government should do a better job of doing what's called data visualization. And the comparison I make is to the weather, right? So weather data comes in as off of the, um, the, there's like weather stations across mm-hmm. the country and it comes in and all these jumble of numbers that wouldn't make sense to any of us. Right. But they turn it into maps that you can see, you know, this pattern's flowing this way and there's a high pressure and a low pressure. And then someone stands there and even explains that to you. And I think government should do the same thing. If they want ordinary people to understand their budgets, don't give us a bunch of numbers. Mm-hmm. Give us like beautiful animated charts that show is it growing, is it shrinking, why is it different than last time? If my taxes are going up, why are your costs really going up? Or are you just scamming me? Mm-hmm. Um, but you're right. Numbers on their own, once they get to a certain size, we all just, yeah, I like it, Star Wars. That's it, right. It, light speed. I'm li- being taxed at light speed. Well, why? <laughs> and the idea of of uh, finding efficiencies and that yeah. sort of thing, I get it. And we can do it at home and we can do it probably in in private business as well quite easily. Yeah. But I think in Ontario at least, and this show's heard across the country, but in, in Ontario right now, efficiency is, seems to be a buzzword that we're hearing you know, from our current provincial government. Yeah. And uh, it doesn't seem like they're particularly effective in finding them. 
They never are. I mean, any large bureaucracy mm -hmm. is going to have inefficiencies, yeah. whether you're Microsoft or the city of Toronto. Um, I think, you know, folks like, like the Fords or Jason Kenney will exaggerate the degree to which waste is there. Um, so it becomes this debate that just goes in circles, mm -hmm. which I think all of us are just sick of. So the folks on the left, let's say David Miller or Kathleen Wynne will say, we've, we've brought in outside auditors. There's no waste. Everything's fine. And then the Fords and the Kennys say, there's so much waste, we can put money back in your pocket. And obviously, the truth is somewhere in between. I'm right. sure there's a bit of waste. Great, find it, get rid of it, and let's move on. Instead, we end up, that becomes the dominant theme, right? Is, is, um, is government taxing us to death or not? And then we end up with right-wing and left-wing governments just flipping back and forth mm -hmm. every four or eight years. And whichever new government comes in spends the first year undoing everything the previous government did. You would never run a household or a business that way, right? Like it's not, it's not stable. It's not good for the economy. It's not good for any of us. Uh, so I, I think we need to like get away from this almost simplistic question about is there an enormous amount mm -hmm. of waste in, in, in government? You know, we've brought in the KPMGs. We, we've, we've done the audits. At some point, we need to just move on. I think part of what you suggest in the, you know, governments flip-flopping back and forth and spending their time of the first mandate undoing the, the previous thing, is that what it seems to me is that people now look at politics almost as though it's sports. I am a Montreal Canadiens fan, right. and I will never, ever cheer for the Maple Leafs no matter what. And vice versa. Yeah. And, you know, we are so divided now on between left and right, uh, liberal and, and, and conservative, Democratic, Republican, whatever, th that nuance has disappeared from this. And I think it makes the conversation way harder. It doesn't just make the conversation harder. It eliminates conversations, mm -hmm. right? So, again, let me be devil's advocate and say, let's run government like a business. What kind of business would set up their board of directors into two teams, Right. <laughs> who, whose job is to just, you know, line up on opposite ends of, of, of a room and, and, and call one the opposition. Yep. So whatever idea comes from the right side of the room, the left side just supposed to yell. And if the left side says something, everyone on that side claps. I mean, we've turned our legislatures into these childish reflections of what we're capable of. And that's not a right wing or a left wing thing. It's just common sense, yeah. both in Ottawa and in Queen's Park and, and any provincial legislature, we've devolved into children. And this isn't just my opinion. There's been surveys of politicians, um, exit interviews when they've retired, asking them about their experience. They themselves are telling us that parliament has become dysfunctional, polarized, hostile, childish. They're embarrassed. So we have a real choice here. Do we keep perpetuating a system that is, I mean, it's a pretty sacred place. Mm -hmm. These legislatures are making enormous decisions that affect health care, transportation, Every medicine, single one of us like, and our grandkids God. and their kids. Yeah. yeah, I mean, when those spaces are, are, as I said, devolving into childish bickering, we have a major problem here. Mm -hmm. We can change the way these systems are designed. Um, system design affects output. And when we come back, we'll continue the conversation with Dave Meslin and we'll find out how we can make change. I know we've spent the, the first segment here kind of in doom and gloom mode. Uh, we, we've, we've set the table. Now let's uh, figure out what to do. I'm speaking with Dave Meslin. The book is called Teardown, Rebuilding Democracy from the Ground Up. Stay with us.
Welcome back. My guest in studio is Dave Meslin. His new book is called Teardown, Rebuilding Democracy from the Ground Up. Uh, The title kind of says it all. And we've been talking about that in the first segment about kind of the mess that we're in uh, and, and a little bit about how we got there. When did you realize that the system was broken? It's, it's been a slow process for me. I've been, I've been um, kind of ticked off about our voting system for about 20 years. Yeah. To me, uh, it's just common sense that like in any marketplace, the, um, the market share should reflect what people actually bought. So if 10% vote green in an election, to me, 10% of the legislature should be green. Mm-hmm. Uh, if 10% vote... Um, Reform Party, Alliance, NDP, whatever, you name it. Mm -hmm. Some new party, the Richard Party, 15%. You should get 15%. Like So when I learned that we have this voting system that creates these wild distortions where you can get 70% of the seats with 35% of the vote or zero seats with 10% of the vote, I thought, well, why did we just have an election? What was what was the point of that? What was the point of knocking on those doors and having those platforms and campaigns if we didn't get what we asked for? And so, were you an activist already then, or was that the thing that kind of nudged you into activism? I think lots of things nudged me. And so I'm 44, so there was environmental issues I was aware of as a teenager. It wasn't climate change then. It was acid rain. That was, that was the big thin th- thing back then, mm-hmm. um, saving... Uh, Big trees was a thing, yep. boreal forests. So I, I got involved with, with, with uh, activism as a teenager, as, as lots of young people do. We've got kids walking out of their schools now on, on Fridays. Um, but then as I got a little older, I started trying to figure out, okay, so it's great to be protesting in the streets, but how does politics actually work? How does, mm-hmm. What happens inside City Hall? Um, what are the ways that an ordinary person like me can actually have my voice heard? It can't just be standing outside holding a placard, yeah, yeah. yelling at a, at a wall. <laughs> um, you know, we, we, we live in a, in a democracy. What is this thing? So I started, I got involved with political parties. I got involved with nonprofit organizations. I, I worked as an executive assistant at City Hall. And I've, and I've worked for people. What did you a, learn there? You must have seen things. So that's the thing. Yeah. This whole journey has been, on the one hand, I've learned, yeah, the, the system's kind of cool, actually. There's a lot of cool things going on. And I've worked for people in every party. I've worked for Michael Chong, who's right. a federal conservative. I've worked with Kathleen Wynne. I've worked with the NDP. Um, but I've also learned at every step of the way that the system is kind of messed up, that it's not it's not a conspiracy theory to say this, but essentially it's an insider's game. It's a complex labyrinth that certain people know how to navigate, and the, the average person would have no clue where to start. Um, and for those who don't know how to navigate it, they can hire lobbyists, and lobbyists do many things, but one of them is they take you by the hand and say, you want this done? You want this done? Let me show you how the system works. So are lobbyists uh, a, a benefit to our democracy or are they part of the problem? They're both. Um, <laughs> so, and I've been a lobbyist. I've, yeah. I've been registered as a federal lobbyist. I've, so I worked with Michael Chong. He's a federal conservative MP and he brought in a piece of legislation two, two or three years ago called the Reform Act. Right. And it was about decentralizing power within parliament. Because right now the party leaders have all the, all the control. The average MP, these are people who represent us. We vote for them. They represent our ridings. 
and they have no power. They have no voice. They're, every vote is whipped. They're told what to say, when to say it, right. how to say it. So he was working on some legislative changes to help give MPs more of a voice. So I was hired as the national director of this thing called the Friends of the Reform Act. And I had to register as a lobbyist, which was really fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so I think lobbyists, to be honest, are a good thing. We often see it as a bad thing. People will often, especially those on the left, they'll say lobbyists give you know the corporate voice mm-hmm. too much power. Or the and, NRA in the U.S. has exactly. very powerful lobbyists. Wherever you've got tons of members or tons of money or a profit motive, then you've got the lobbyists and then other voices aren't heard. Okay, fair enough. What I propose in the book is, um, and this isn't my idea, it's an idea I found from some really smart uh, academics in the U.S. who've proposed a very counterintuitive idea. Their solution to lobbying is more lobbying. <laughs> and their idea is that the, it, lobbying is only a problem if, if only one side is, right. is being heard. So the example they use is in a court of law, if you or I were charged with a crime and we were really low income, we would be provided legal aid um, and maybe a lawyer by our side, by the st- funded by yeah, the yeah. state. Why? Because everyone deserves uh, uh, um, a voice and to be heard and, and defense. And exactly. Everyone d- deserves a fair defense in a court of law. So they t- take this and expand it to politics and say everyone deserves a lobbyist, <laughs> essentially, because it's the same thing. If you're in court without a lawyer... You don't understand the process. You you won't know when to stand up, what to say. You you could say something that incriminates you, etc. Yeah. So they have this idea called the Office of Public Lobbyists, and the idea is there would be uh, an office at at City Hall, three or four f- paid full time lobbyists that anyone could just walk in and say, "I have an issue. I have an idea. I'm I'm with a nonprofit group," right. and they'll sit down with you and say, "Okay, I'll 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 help you out. I'm your lobbyist now." And I love it. I think it's brilliant. Now, those on the on the kind of far right would cringe and just be like, oh, that's four more salaries we mm-hmm. don't need. But again, this is where we need to see – this is where the, the data visualization comes in, you know, adding four more staff to a to a And, and will it ultimately save money somewhere else perhaps? It could because yeah. it could make the whole system more efficient. So yeah. when politicians make a decision in favor of one interest – they might have to undo that two years later when, when the other side starts fighting back. Mm-hmm. Probably better for them to get all the information up front. But the idea is that corporate lobbyists play a, a really good role. Um, politicians will make the best decision when they are exposed to the most information possible. So if a gas company or an oil company or a diamond company or whatever company wants to hire lobbyists to get their information to a politician, great. Mm-hmm. As long as that nonprofit group that is against that also has access right. to to some level. I mean, they're never going to have access to the same amount of lobbying. That would be really expensive, but at least give them something. Someone who can say, okay, this is how this is this is what's happening on the other side, and let me explain to you um, how this unfolds. There's going to be a committee hearing. There's a second reading, a third reading. It's going to go to the the, the, the uh, Senate. Right. There's an opportunity for amendments at this point, but not at this point. No one knows this stuff. No one knows how how the system works. And we don't teach it in school either. So why don't we start with that? Why don't we actually teach civics better in high school? That'll help level the playing field too. When we come back, we'll talk about teaching civics in school, why we don't do a better job of it, and if it's – or I guess if there's still time – 
to fix democracy before the election. I'm speaking with Dave Meslin. His book is called Teardown, Rebuilding Democracy from the Ground Up. Stay with us. Welcome back. My guest in studio is Dave Meslin. His new book, Teardown, Rebuilding Democracy from the Ground Up, uh, is uh, available wherever you buy books. Getting great reviews. Uh, Andrew Coyne says, Dave Meslin is a force of nature, a one-man think tank pressure group who won't stop until he sees his ideas for a better democracy put into action. We talked uh, in this last segment about lobbyists and sort of it filtered down to your final statement of fact, which is we don't do a very good job of teaching civics in school. Uh, my civics classes, I don't even remember. Now, granted, it was a long time ago, but I have a feeling that it was as cursory and, you know, as as uh, probably disengaged as possible from a teacher who probably looked at all of us and said, none of you are ever going to be prime minister, so this doesn't matter. Yeah, and Pay half your taxes the, half and the you aren't even going to vote. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what do we do? I mean, how do we fix that? I mean, the idea of being politically engaged, I think younger people now are more politically engaged. And, you know, I think it probably goes through waves. You know, in the 60s, young people got very politically engaged because they had the Vietnam War and they that you could really see uh, a cause and effect. Nixon's in power. He's not going to stop the war. I may have to go to Vietnam. I'm going to protest. Right. Uh, in the 80s, I think it was less so in terms of, of 80s and 90s probably, uh, even through the Reagan years and all that sort of thing. Now, again, we're starting to see uh, cause and effect. We're starting to see kids stand up in the United States certainly and, and say, you know, no, NRA, we are going to protest. No, we are going to stand up for our rights. So it, it is cyclical, I think. But – how can we get uh, – so if it is cyclical, I guess, it will. there will be another downturn and right. people will become disengaged again. How do we make sure that doesn't happen? Well, first of all, I'm not promoting more protest movements necessarily. Like that's just one part of political engagement um, when people are out marching in the streets. I'm really talking about more about how do we create a culture where political engagement is a normal thing that a soccer mom would do. Right. Not in the streets with a placard, but showing up at the town hall meeting where they're making a decision that's going to affect her kids, right? So political engagement doesn't have to be I'm angry and I'm against a war or I'm against, you know, pollution. It can be something that's almost very selfish. I'm I'm concerned about – You're going to close the park in my – in my neighborhood, yeah. and I don't want that to yeah. happen. Yeah, or they yeah. haven't fixed the swing, or right. why is my library closed on Sunday? Why is daycare so expensive? Mm-hmm. So there are decisions made every day at all three levels of, of government that affect everyone's life. Um, it makes sense that we would all be engaged to some degree um, in influencing those decisions. Mm-hmm. The bare minimum you can do is vote once every four years, and we're having trouble getting people yeah. to even do that. And I think it's because they realize that that's maybe not the best way to to have your voice heard. I well, mean, and you were saying about represent, representational government. You vote for the NDP, they get 10 percent, and yet they don't get 10 percent of the House. So why bother voting? We very often have governments um, in charge of a province with a majority of the seats – and again, centralized, which means you've got just this one one premier who's really in charge, one office. Even when a majority of the voters voted against them, mm-hmm. 
That's crazy. And that's crazy on the left or the right. Yeah. You know, when Rachel Notley became the premier of, of Alberta, most voters actually voted for conservative parties. Mm-hmm. Um, when Doug Ford became the premier of Ontario, most voters voted liberal NDP green combined. I think it's wrong in both cases. I think elections should produce whatever people ask for. And anytime you have, I mean, in most Western democracies, if a party takes power against the will of the majority, it's called a coup. Yeah, that's right. right? Yeah. <laughs> we just call it an election and pretend it's normal. And, and there, say there's things nothing like normal the, about it. And say things like the voters never get it wrong. And well, yet. Yeah, exactly. But the, we never give the voters what they asked for. Yeah. And, you know, the, the main reason I would love to see us change to some kind of proportional system isn't just that it would mean that, you know, if a party got 10 percent, they would get 10 percent of the seats. It would allow new parties to merge. To right. emerge, it would be much more like the free market, the 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 monetary market. So when you have a competitive marketplace, you have new businesses starting up all the time. It's really cool. And if they gain, you know, five percent of the market share, they get five percent of the revenue. They can reinvest that in the business and grow. And you end up with things like Uber, who like out of the blue disrupt right. a whole sector. I think we could use a bit of that in politics. New parties who get 5% one election, 5% of the seats, next time they get 10, next time they get 20, and you see the old parties slowly die off and new parties emerge. Instead, a new party emerges like Wild Rose. Mm -hmm. They get a bunch of seats. People accuse them of being a vote splitter, and they merge back in. Same with the Reform Party. And there's always pressure on the Greens to merge with the NDP or the NDP to merge with the Liberals. That would be terrible. That would be less choice. The last thing we need is an American-style system with just two parties. Mm-hmm. Although, let's be honest, essentially, we do have a two-party yep. system, aside from the very unusual anomaly of Bob Ray or Rachel Notley. You know, federally, we've only had two parties in power for 150 years. And what's going to happen in October? It might stay red. It might go blue. That's it. I mean, that's as, 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 as exciting as it gets in Canadian politics. I'm speaking with Dave Meslin. The book is called Tear Down, Rebuilding Democracy from the Ground Up. The election's coming. Is there time to change people's minds in terms of making them more engaged and in terms of, of making them seem or making them think that, that voting isn't such a chore? Yeah, well, what I would encourage people to do is, you know, Get involved with the election for sure. If you like a candidate, volunteer for them. Give them some money. If you don't like any of them, run run for office. Yeah, yeah. You know, put your you, you can run as an independent. Yeah. You can try and win a nomination for a party. You can start your own party. But don't let these elections serve as a, a distraction from the bigger question, which is, is the system itself working for you? And we were just talking before about civics. We should be teaching civics um, as a full credit every year in high school. But also, why don't we have free adult courses Mm -hmm. for people who want to learn about how government works? You know, Home Depot offers courses every Saturday morning. Come and learn how to use our tools. That's really smart. That costs them money. But they know that if you know how to use the tools, you'll buy more lumber and tiles. So if we want to get people engaged with politics, we need courses where you learn how the budget process works. You and learn for how new Canadians, work. and that sort of thing, it's a perfect thing for them to learn our system. Yeah, although I think I think all Canadians probably could <laughs> yeah, yeah. could uh, could use could the benefit, course. Yeah. So 
the election is going to be what it is. It's going to be very divisive. It's going to be hostile. The outcome won't be what we asked for. Whatever we asked for, the outcome will be distorted because we use a really obscure system called first past the post. We're the only member of the OECD that is using this system for all three levels of government. Even our political parties don't use it. You know, that's the big kicker. NDP, conservative, liberal, when they choose their own leader, they don't use first past the post. They don't say, okay, there's four candidates. This guy got 35. He got the most, so he wins. They say, well, no one got 50. So we're going to drop off the one with the least. And we're going to vote again. Or what they've done now is they've all switched to a simple ranked ballot. Mm -hmm. So if you have four people running for leader and no one gets a majority on the first count, you eliminate the candidate with the least. And those ballots get get instantly reallocated to the second choice. You look at the numbers again. Now, does anyone have a, a majority? If they do, it's over. If they don't, you keep eliminating. You need to have you wouldn't want to have a leader of a party that most members didn't want. Mm -hmm. Yet that's what we have with all of our premiers. Every election, <laughs> every election, we have we'll have a we have a prime minister right now, who who's representing a country where most voters didn't vote liberal. And I mean, are you amazed? And we're, we've only got a few seconds left in this segment, but are you amazed that that people aren't? Writing in, writing, nobody writes letters to newspapers anymore, but, you know, protesting somehow. I don't think they're aware. This. Yeah. Again, if you're not teaching this in school in the first place, if you think that our voting system is just the normal system everyone uses, how could you be angry about it? So this is why I wrote the book. I want people to know that there's different ways to run political systems. And the way we're running it right now is really stupid. Uh, when we come back, we're going to continue the conversation with Dave Meslin. The book is called Tear Down, Rebuilding Democracy from the Ground Up. And we're going to talk about some very specific things. I want to find out why it's so hard to find the door to Halifax City Hall. This is a place that's for the people, by the people, and yet apparently it's a, a tough building to find your way into. Stay with us. Welcome back, everybody. Dave Meslin is the author of Tear Down, Rebuilding Democracy from the Ground Up. It's in bookstores right now. Find it wherever you buy books. Uh, uh, there's loads of great reviews here. Michael Chong, conservative MP and author of the Reform Act, calls it an easy-to-read, humorous, honest, and blunt assessment of Canadian democracy. Uh, someone who has experienced firsthand how uh, politics works. So the idea that and we, we've discussed this, we've touched on it, that you're partisan somehow in this is out the window when we are quoting uh, conservative MPs and you've worked with everybody. You've yeah. worked with Kathleen Wynne. You've worked, you've worked all over the place. Yeah. You were just looking at the system as a whole and saying, man, oh, man, is this thing tattered and torn. Yeah, and, and, and I know we can do so much better. Mm -hmm. You know, humans can be easily attracted towards hostile environments. We know how to fight. Right. And sometimes we like fighting, right? But we can just as easily be drawn towards civil discussions like you and I are having right, right now. And the way you design a political system and an election and a parliament will impact whether those politicians end up arguing and fighting or actually listening to each other. And I think we would all benefit from having a political system that was a little bit more uh, grown up. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's a lot to ask for. So why is it so hard to find the door to Halifax City Hall? Sure. It's a, it's, it's a funny question. So I was in Halifax, and I uh, this was part of the research for my trip, and I was meeting with a counselor, 
and Google Maps told me where the building was, and I found what I thought was the building, but there was no clear signage indicating that this was City Hall. Um, there was no door that was open facing either of the main streets right. that I was on. I had to go around a secondary side street, find another opening, and the only signs there said no skateboarding and no parking. Finally, of course, I found the door. But it's interesting because on this, this is, it's on the corner of a main intersection. Yeah. The other three corners have a hotel, a bank, and a mall. And I can tell you... The signs on those are bright. <laughs> Very clear. And, you know, I have a, a TED Talk where I contrast how government designs their public notices compared to how Nike sells shoes, um, fantasizing that, not criticizing Nike, but criticizing government. Um, Nike's motivation clearly is to sell shoes because they make beautiful, sexy, funny ads. Yeah, yeah. And government makes these public notices that is, are impossible to even understand. So here you have the physical manifestation of that, this, these four corners where you've got three private buildings saying, come in, come, you know, come to my bank, come to my hotel, come to my restaurant. And this fourth building that it could have been a prison, it could have been a museum. <laughs> You had to walk around four sides to even figure out how to get in. But instead, it's a metaphor for the really impenetrability of, of a lot of political life in this right. country. Now, when that building was built, it was the tallest structure on the East Coast. So no one needed to put up a sign. Right. But it hasn't occurred to anyone over the last hundred years <laughs> to update it. And that's really my whole point. It, it hasn't become an insider's game because of a conspiracy theory. No one in, in government is saying, you know, how do we keep the ordinary people mm -hmm. out? But in a corporate environment, you'll hire user design uh, professionals who, who will tell you how to get people excited, how to get people into your door, how to get people to listen to your show, to yeah. tune in, you know, the um, News Talk 1010 has, or sorry, that's what the microphone says. Yeah, that's what I Heart Radio, yeah. you know, has a logo. It's yeah. beautiful. It's got a heart on it. So the private sector knows how to do marketing outreach and make people feel comfortable. Meanwhile, government seems to do the opposite. They, they speak in a way that alienates us. They design environments that don't feel comfortable. And then, of course, most of us just tune it out. So even though in some ways I'm coming at this from the center left because I believe in government, I think the way to fix government is actually to run it like a business. Businesses spend a lot of money worrying about the average consumer, mm -hmm. the average customer, investing in the consumer experience. Um, I want some of my tax dollars invested the same way so we can all interact with government the same way we interact with the Eden Center. It's funny because I think a lot of our uh, political buildings across the country, certainly the ones uh, that are of an age, are you know 50 to 100 years old, were built with the idea in mind that they are to inspire awe in you. As you go in, you are supposed to feel a little humbled. I mean, if you're working there, you are working for the greater good and you are, you know, you should feel uh, like you're a part of this giant machine. And if you're going there, I think you're supposed to feel humbled right. that you're in the presence of, but, of our democracy, right. even though these are our buildings. Right. And even though it, there's nothing humbling about what's happening in those buildings. That's right. It's a, yeah, it's yeah. a bunch of grown adults yelling at each other. <laughs> but it's not just the physical design. It's the rules. So, for example, if you try to go to a city council meeting, first of all, you'll have trouble finding the council chamber. Mm -hmm. 
if you're there for a particular item, you'll have trouble knowing what time the item is even going to be on because they don't have it scheduled. Right. Imagine a movie theater not having a schedule of right. when, when the movies are. Um, you're not, literally not allowed to eat or drink in the chamber. Or take notes. Uh, in the legislature, yes. Yeah. In the Ontario legislature, you are not allowed to bring in a pencil, right? So again, it's almost, it's almost like if you made a list of all the things that an average person would want to do to be comfortable, which is probably have some water, a yep. snack, some notes, a phone, a place to charge your laptop, a schedule, none of that is there. It is designed to ensure, again, not intentionally, but it is, it is currently designed in a way that ensures the average person will not walk through those doors. And if by chance they do, they're sure as hell not coming back. I'm speaking with Dave Meslin. The book is called Tear Down, Rebuilding Democracy from the Ground Up. It's available everywhere you buy books uh, right now, whether it's brick and mortar or online. Uh, The book is not all doom and gloom. Uh, You have done a great deal of traveling uh, in the research for this book. And there's a a number of people that are getting it right. I mean, we're talking about neighborhood councils in Los Angeles, uh, the Democratic School in Denver, British Columbia's creation of the Citizens' Assembly on Electoral Reform, uh, the City Hall schools in Calgary and Edmonton. So, I mean, there are steps being taken. Is it enough? It's enough if we all start paying a little more attention to what mm-hmm. these uh, solutions are. It really is a book of, of remedies. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm definitely trying to tap into people's anger because I'm, I'm angry too. But it's not a book just about why we should be angry. It's mostly a book about how we can fix things. There's a lot of ideas that are mine that, mm-hmm. that I've imagined up. But mostly there's actually ideas that I've gone to other places, as you said, and said, look what they're doing there. Why don't we try that? We need a little bit more experimentation. We need to allow ourselves to be creative. We often assume that politics should always be done just based on tradition, Mm -hmm. the way our parents did, the way our grandparents did. We don't do that with anything else in our lives. We don't... (laughs) With medicine, with nothing else. Yeah, could you imagine a new new medicine is invented and we say, oh, well, our grandparents didn't use that. They used a poultice. We don't need that fancy Um, needle. When CDs were invented, no one said, well, tapes, you know, tapes are tradition, right? (laughs) So we need to let go of tradition a bit and allow politics to be a little more like liquid and organic and let's play with it. Do you think that disruption scares people? It might, um, but I, I guess my question would be, why, why doesn't it scare you in, in other parts of your life? Mm-hmm. We embrace disruption. We, we, we do makeovers of our homes, of our, of our clothes, of our hair, of our, yeah, yeah. you know, we, we, we definitely encourage it in the private sector with, with upstarts, and we, we see that as a really good thing, right? Um, entrepreneurialism. So why would we think that in politics somehow we're better off just doing it the same way they were doing it 100 years ago. So I think in general, people aren't scared of change. Um, it's just we've, we've somehow attached the word tradition just to politics. And I think if we break that, it'll allow ourselves to be more creative. And we're, hum, hum, humans have proven that we're very good at being creative. Mm-hmm. So why wouldn't we put that creativity to use? I have a quote here from you where you say, uh, I'm left feeling both hope and rage. That's from the introduction. Which, which if this was a scale, which which is uh, the, the heavier weight, hope or rage? I think right now the hope is a little bigger. Yes. It has to be. Otherwise, how would you get out of bed in the morning? Mm-hmm. I have so much hope. And, and I have hope because I've, on, this, on the one hand, I see 
what we're doing politically, the hostility, the the nonsensical flip-flop between left and right. Um, on the other hand, I daily see the capacity of humans to get along mm-hmm. and to listen to each other and admit mistakes and have empathy. Um, we're amazing people when when our best is brought out, out in us. So you can have a system that brings out our worst or a system that brings out our best. And uh, I know which one I'm rooting for. And... Other than the book, uh, you're involved in this. We just have a, like a, a minute left here. Uh, but Unlock Democracy, your group is still unlocking democracy. Yeah, it's a side project, yeah. unlockdemocracy.ca. It, there's, there's some ideas on there about how to change voting systems. Mm-hmm. In fact, we've been working locally asking city councils to change their voting systems. And we've been quite successful. So um, London, Ontario City Council is right now the first and only government that has actually ditched first past the post. And it worked. It was great. And two other cities recently held referendums on it, Kingston and Cambridge. And I worked on both of the Yes campaigns, and we won both of them. So change is coming. It's slow, but it's on the way. And um, it can't come fast enough. I guess that's it, though. Patience, right? Patience and persistence uh, is are the two keys to any kind of broad societal change. Absolutely. And l- listen, check out the book. I don't expect you to like everything in it, but um, <laughs> if you don't, if you don't love some of the ideas in there, and if it doesn't change your outlook on politics, I'll give you your money back. Wow. You heard it here first. The book is called Teardown, Rebuilding Democracy from the Ground Up. I don't think you're going to get a lot of people coming at you, uh, wanting their money back. Uh, It's available wherever books are sold. Uh, Great reviews. Uh, The back cover alone has great reviews from Elizabeth May, leader of the Green Party of Canada, and Michael Chong, a conservative MP. So it's nonpartisan. It is a book that looks at uh, the whole system, why it's broken, and how to fix it. Uh, Dave, thanks so much. Thank you. Yeah, what a pleasure to have you in. Uh, My thanks to you for listening, and my thanks to Andre on the board. We'll talk again next week.